This is Think Like a Genius. Tread the line of cognitive psychology, neuroscience, persuasion, and so much more than gray matter. Let's dive in as we fall into a world of intrigue. And now, Think Like a Genius with your host, Lance Vantanar. Today's show has a bit of a surprise. I was able to get a discount code from Stefan for the new GetSense8 that are their device. Now, if you have ever felt like uh, you're more focused and relaxed and happier, regardless of the environment you're in, when you've meditated and you feel amazing and powerful, then you know how it works. The secret source in this case is Sensate. I have found that it does amazing things for me when I meditate. I'm a lot more focused. I'm very, very relaxed. And that in turn gives me a lot more creativity in, you know, during my day. I found that my sleep is a lot better. And I've also had an added benefit that I seem to be better able to cope with hay fever. My symptoms are reduced a lot more. Uh, I'm not sneezing as much and I'm also not having the adverse reactions. So the immune benefits from the stimulation just in less than a week has been more than enough to make this well worth my while. You can either use a discount code of LW15 on the website, or you can use the link in the show notes below. Stefan, welcome to Thinking Like a Genius podcast. I'm quite excited to speak with you about the topic that we've got in hand. There's a, there's a couple of areas which we're going to be delving into. Just to give people an idea of uh, what we're talking today, we are talking about more on the vagus nerve and also Sensafe, which is the vagus nerve stimulation device which you are bringing to market. That's right, Lance. Good to be here. Thank you. So yeah, the Sensate device is a wearable piece of tech that uh, is the culmination really of my last 30 years of clinical experience. To give people a bit of a background, what is what is your historical background? How did you get involved with vagus nerve and your work in that? And what brought you to actually develop Sensafe as a solution? Mm. Well, as I say, it's the culmination really of my professional career, but actually in effect, my life journey. I mean, dad taught me and my brother to meditate at a very early age, five, six years old. So meditation of various types has been a central part of my life for pretty much all my life, really. And I've pursued different methods and I've studied with different teachers. Um, And for the last 20 years or so, I've been teaching people how to meditate and using that as a central part of what I do in clinic. I'm founder of a group called New Medicine Group in Harley Street. We're one of the UK's main integrated healthcare practices. So we combine scientific testing with uh, natural and holistic interventions. And my role in that team is to provide people with uh, useful and meaningful tools to manage stress. Uh, We know um, very much from the research that 
meditation and the ability to relax on demand is really a key part of mental and physical health. And the kind of problems people are suffering from these days are uh, to do with dysregulation and information much more than they were the kind of things that people got ill from or died from a generation or two ago. And we, what I see in clinic is uh, a lot of stress hormone dysregulation, a lot of uh, flight or fight freeze response being used on an inappropriate basis, so a lot of inappropriate adrenal secretion, cortisol dysregulation. And from our experience at the New Medicine Group is that this is, if you dig down, it's essentially what's behind a lot of the chronic diseases that we're seeing with people. Uh, everything from heart disease to obesity to cancer to autoimmune disease. If you dig down into these things, what you find is dysregulation of uh, stress hormones in particular. Just to dive into a couple of things, you mentioned meditation. You know, I do meditation myself, but it's also there's a I think there's a general misconception that meditation requires you to sit there for hours on end to be able to practice your you know, mindfulness and breathing and and all the other disciplines which uh, are associated with that. When you teach people about meditation to actually develop that as a skill, what are the basic concepts that you actually teach people which will have an obvious beneficial impact on vagus nerve stimulation and also regulating you know, hormonal uh, differences within the body? Yeah, meditation, of course, covers many different disciplines and approaches. Mindfulness is uh, has become you know increasingly popular over the last couple of decades, following John Kabat-Zinn's work at, in the University of Massachusetts. And of course, it's very excited a lot of people in the psychological world because it's one of the few psychological interventions that seems to produce results in the clinic. I've used mindfulness significantly with people over the uh, over the last um, twenty years or so, but what I found is that although meditation isn't the ability to empty the mind, isn't the ability to be calm, or and certainly isn't the the process of becoming unconscious. If there is a level of background anxiety, if people are breathing poorly, if they're holding their breath, as so many people are, then it's incredibly physically and mentally uncomfortable for people to try to sit with themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's really the problem here. And that's what we're finding is a lot of meditation techniques are essentially failing people because when they try to practice them, they become physically and mentally quite uncomfortable. And what's the best way of actually resolving that from a practitioner's point of view? Anxiety is noticing yourself in the present moment and not liking what you see which is the opposite, effectively, of what mindfulness is usually um, uh, thought to be, which is noticing your your present moment experience and being okay with it, whatever it might be, whether it's um, a sensation that might otherwise be termed uh, uncomfortable or painful or a situation you're in that wasn't necessarily of your choosing. The point is you can sit back, be aware of the, the process that's going on for you and develop equanimity around that process, so basically to be okay about it which is very different from being resigned or victimized by it. And I think also this is um, a, another bit of a problem we have, is there's quite a big difference in the East, where certainly not all, there were significant meditation traditions, obviously, within Western culture, but a lot of the approaches that people have been drawn towards over the last, you know, since the, uh, the 60s have been more Eastern-based. There's a very different um, moral imperative around blame, 
or about responsibility in the East versus the kind of Greco-Roman Christian Judeo tradition in the West, which is there's a lot more guilt, there's a lot more idea of failure. And I think if you overlay guilt and failure onto the process of meditation, what you come up with is a lot of discomfort. I can definitely see that. At the I certainly think that the you could say the religious influence on Western culture has got a lot of you could say guilt built into it, and that is something that a lot of people find. I think it overlays a lot of their thought processes, even though it's it's not obviously there. It's a bit of a subconscious process, which ends up making them quite uncomfortable because they can't comfortably sit and accept certain faults because there's a very strong imperative to always look for the weakness and fix the weakness. And I don't think people have become comfortable with the fact that there are certain weaknesses that they've got. There are certain things which other people will see as faults or anything else. But accepting themselves in that position is a first step to actually getting to a point where they can have, you could say, a balanced approach and be a lot more aware of what they are and feel rather than trying to judge themselves. I think there's a lot of judgment in the meditation practice, which probably causes a lot of discomfort. I think that's exactly right. I mean, if, if, when you start to talk about acceptance or non-judgment with a lot of people, uh, that's incredibly difficult for them. Acceptance, what they hear is surrender. And we see this in imagery and discussions around certain chronic health issues, particularly, say, cancer, um, where all the imagery is around heroic survivors and the battle uh, and the not giving in to the not accepting the diagnosis. And that's very different. So, so we have this imagery around failure, if you accept, whereas yeah. from a meditation and from a mindfulness point of view, acceptance actually is empowerment. Because then you cease yeah. to be driven by imperatives or by messages which actually aren't within you, but are external to you. Very, very valid statements and very true. I've over the last couple of years, I've started looking, instead of looking at everything from a success-failure point of view, I shifted my focus to a learning point of view. It's regardless of what the situation is, try and approach it from what can I learn out of the situation to then make a assessment call based on that rather than this is a failure or this is a success. You're using the whole process as an iterative learning process throughout everything that you do. And that allows you could say better emotional stability when you're actually dealing with things on a day-to-day -day basis, even when it comes to a very stressful situations. When you start seeing it just as information coming in and out, you don't have the same, you could say, peak and trough of the emotional responses to a situation. And it helps keep you a lot more focused and a lot more stable when you actually deal with things on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, as the joke goes, you know, why can't the Buddha... Uh, Hoover under the sofa, and it's because he has no attachments. And this this uh, <laughs> this idea of attachments is is you know it's of course it's a human issue, but it's, mm. it's exacerbated by consumerist culture. It's it's made worse by uh, the the selfie based uh, and like based social media culture that we have. That people have a lot of a lot of baggage and a lot of uh, identity tied up in external factors and attachments. So, you know, if it's true, and I think it's reasonable to say that it is, that the only universal law is that nothing stays the same and that everything changes, 
if we attach to something, which of course we tend to, then when that thing does change, we will be unhappy. So if our happiness is our con contentedness, and actually I think contentedness is a much more important human emotion than happiness. If our contentedness is, is linked to things that we are attached to, then of course when that changes, we can only become discontent. Mm. Yeah, very valid statement. Now coming back to meditation and vagus nerve give people a bit of a background to to vagus nerve and vagus nerve as a whole and then what your you'd say path was in coming into the technology sphere sphere with with your work yeah i mean i i've got to the point now in my work where i absolutely believe that uh, strengthening vagal nerve tone is the closest thing to a magic bullet that we can ever have Human beings have had a vagus nerve for hundreds of millions of years, obviously before we were human beings, at least some parts of the vagus nerve. You know, it's been there since we were fish. It's um, the primordial nervous system, if you like. It's the thing that connects the five brains, yeah, because human beings have five brains. You've got four in the head. We've stacked them up over our evolutionary process, and then we have the enteric nervous system, the gut, which is you know, officially the fifth brain. It's not just a fanciful concept. And the thing connecting these two um, systems these brain and gut brains is the vagus nerve so this is this super highway uh, that goes from the brain stem vagus means wandering in greek so it wanders down through the left ear down through the throat through the chest and down into the gut so it passes through all the organs pretty much it is the nerve that controls the autonomic nervous system the functions that we don't have to, we don't want to think about, uh, like breathing and heartbeat and perspiration, uh, all these things that go on in the background uh, and that we don't want to have conscious um, control over. Regulates blood pressure, so um, and it works with other systems to do this. But you know, the reason you don't faint when you stand up is because a whole series of complex um, adjustments go on within the system, mean that you know, blood flow uh, is regulated to the head, etc. Because it's um, it's hardwired much more deeply than the human frontal brain into the nervous system, and it's hardwired into the brain stem, which is you know the lizard brain. This is where threat perception originates so the image that i think works really well is if you have like a lizard sitting on a rock you know eyes either side of its head so that it can see things from all around and from above and you know it's sitting there and it's looking is that a shadow of a bird is that a stick is that a snake and it's constantly scanning the environment looking for danger looking for threat and your um, your brainstem is doing this the whole time, whether you're aware of this or not. And of course, that's the thing that saves your life, uh, perhaps a few times. Um, you know, makes you jump back from the edge of the road when it sees a flash of red bus or whatever coming towards you. And then, and then afterwards, you get this real kind of um, adrenaline surge where you're panting and excited in the sense. A surge of adrenaline into the system is um, is very makes life uh, very technical, very vivid. Which is why adrenaline itself, of course, is so addictive uh, and why people pursue adrenaline-based activities, whether they know it or not, whether it's white-knuckle sports or whether it's being stressed and anxious. You know, it, can be quite, mm. it can be quite addictive because life as a content person rather than a stressed and anxious person can seem less technicolor. 
There are a number of biomarkers which uh, it, we know uh, with clarity are associated with longevity, with disease avoidance, with performance, uh, with happiness, with contentedness, uh, with memory, etc. Heart rate variability is one of these. Uh, this is being used mostly in elite athletes, but it's being increasingly recognized as a health biomarker as well. And heart rate variability is essentially the microscopic variations between heartbeats. So in one sense, it has not to do with the heart itself. It's to do with the regulatory mechanisms around homeostasis. So the way I like to describe this is the heart, of course, should be regular. But the heart is not a metronome either. It shouldn't be um, absolutely regular because something that can't flex will break. So the heart has to have the ability to microscopically flex depending on external stresses, you know, whether that's standing up and run, going for a run, being under more stress, having less sleep, etc. So measurement of heart rate variability is an excellent predictor of uh, long-term lifespan, potential lifespan and, and disease prediction. Your vagal tone is a vagal reflection of what's called subjective well-being which is a purely subjective uh, response by somebody as to how they feel in the moment. And so if you say to somebody on a scale of naught to six, it's a slightly strange scale, but that's the one that's used, you know, what's your overall sense of well-being at the moment? And interestingly, I can, you know, confirm that over several decades seeing thousands of patients, some the way that somebody answers that question will give you startling insights into their outlook and their likely ability to recover from a condition. So somebody with a relatively minor condition who uh, reports poor subjective well-being is likely to not do well, whereas somebody with a critical condition who reports high subjective well-being, irrespective of the increased severity of their symptoms, is more likely to do well which is interesting. So the, in other words, the subjective side absolutely reflects the objective um, ECG data. Uh, so, um, and I think, I think this is the interesting thing about the vagus nerve. I think it is, you know, some people describe it as the, the nerve of meaning or the nerve of emotions. It seems to be the link between the physical and the emotional world. Mm. There's a couple of things which I'd just like to get a bit of clarity on. The first one is you mentioned the five brains. Can you explain a bit more about that? Sure. So we started off, obviously, as fish. Well, we started off, of course, prior to that. But, uh, you know, fish crawled onto the land, etc., and they did have a brain. And this is the brain that uh, learned to look for food and to scan for danger and, for, and to uh, find a mate. And, uh, in fact, going back even further than that briefly, uh, it seems quite likely that the first sense that we would have developed as uh, simple organisms would have been sense of vibration. So ability to mm -hmm. find food, ability to sense danger before we had eyes or ears or a nose would have been based around vibration. So there's something also intrinsically hardwired at an incredibly deep level about vibrational perception into the human system, which is why vibration is such a powerful tool and that's why we've, it's the one that we've chosen to use. Then obviously... As Sorry, just to add into that, is that also why music has got such a powerful impact on people? Exactly. It's interesting because some of the guys that understood this, uh, Bach, Monteverdi, some uh, the Gregorian chants, a lot of this music has the sacred music, whether it's Tibetan chanting, uh, oms, mantras, etc. A lot of this has um, 
two things, actually. It induces the breath rate of between 5.8 and 7 breaths per minute, which is the magic, mm -hmm. magical number to in produce heart coherence, the point at which the heart goes into heart rate variability. But also a lot of it contains sub-audible frequencies. So if you go into, as I have done, into a decent-sized church and you speak to the organist and you get them to show you the lower register and play the lower register of um, a church organ, the lower couple of octaves are actually inaudible. But yet guys like Bach were writing pieces incorporating that lower register into their music. I think there's a wow. yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So, but you know, you get them to play these these lower octaves, and you can feel them. Yeah, so you're feeling the building vibrate, but you can't hear anything. So it's incredibly interesting, isn't it? So you know, we have, human beings have found ways to make our body and our chest particularly vibrate over the last few thousand years, and in a sense, what we're doing is is creating a method where people can do that consistently and reliably because it can be quite hard to learn how to do it effectively yourself because if you get the frequencies wrong you can also make yourself feel uncomfortable yeah i mean uh, yeah. various governments and police forces and armies have tested uh, infrasonic and ultrasonic weaponry we know that we can shatter gallstones with ultrasonics so ultrasonics is high frequency yeah it's the stuff we use for imaging it's the stuff we use to destroy materials Infrasonic is the low end of the register, so it's the subaudible stuff. It's the bass stuff. It's why people like, you know, in, in like bass frequencies in rock music and in you know, reggae, etc., because that that goes into the the lower part of the body, it goes into the sexual organs, so it makes you feel good. It's a different kind of take on things. I've I've not had a chance to actually explore that, and I'm actually quite excited to explore that you know get that insight on the other thing I, I just wanted to tease out a bit more you mentioned about the recoverability and some people being able to cope better than others even though their stress conditions are better because of their subjective mm. capability or, or feeling mm. that to me points to you could say consistent consistent stress over a long period of time which starts degrading the amount of recoverability of the person which actually leads to other issues obviously the stress conditions have impact on your heart rate and your breathing tempo and your continued fight and flight responses but increases also inflammation markers within the body which is where the vagus nerve has got a very powerful way of actually countering that when you start stimulating that is that correct yeah absolutely so you know, human beings are the only creatures which give meaning to things. We're the only um, organisms that can envisage a universe without us in it. We can perceive ourselves in a way that animals can't. So therefore, that, that's obviously our curse and our blessing at the same time. It means that we are interested and we like inventing things and we fly to the moon, etc. It also means that we constantly look for meaning in the data around us. And if there is no meaning, we'll give things meaning. And this essentially is the cause of pretty much all human unhappiness. We will give the data meaning. Even when there is no meaning even, at yeah, all. Even when there is absolutely no meaning. And uh, one of the issues I think that's happened um, since the 50s or so is the elevation of emotion to a status which it didn't really previously have. 
if we consider that emotions are essentially chemical messages with a purpose, and it's essentially a survival purpose to make us fall in love or to run away from danger or to be sociable so that we're, our, our survival chance is greater, you know, then, then we see them for what they are, which is uh, useful, potentially tools for survival. I think what's, what we've allowed to happen in society is that emotions have been elevated to the status of the thing with the most important meaning. Part of the process of meditation is to be able to step back and observe the influence of things on us. So whether that's, uh, of course, physical influence, so how uncomfortable our body or how comfortable is our body in this moment, but also what is the impact of um, uh, emotions on the mind and how is that influencing our perception of our moment-by-moment reality. Step back again to the, the five brain topic. You mentioned the fish brain or the uh, lizard brain. Which are the other brains you could say in order as they've developed? Then we obviously then became legs. Um, so you have the human brain, which is the final brain. You have the mammalian brain, the primate brain. After lizards, we became primates. Then we became mammals. Yeah, and then we became humans. We had a gut throughout all of that. So also the gut nervous system is more hardwired, if you like, for feelings and for emotion than the the human brain, which is a relatively new addition to this uh, ice cream cone of brains that are stacked on top of each other inside the skull. That's in many ways the problem. There's a disconnect, if you like, between the language of the gut brain, the lizard brain, and the human frontal brain. So the human frontal brain likes information, it likes meaning, uh, it likes processing data, it likes language, it likes linear processes. So you know, this is the part of the brain that kind of develops psychotherapy, if you like, uh, sitting down and talking mm. through our problems. The problem with that approach is that most traumatic experience, most um, issues that people hold, most dysfunctional emotions that people are carrying are held at a somatic level. They're held at a, um, a feeling level, not a, not a, um, a verbal or language-based level. So if you try to use language as opposed to feeling to um, address a problem, then essentially you're talking in a foreign language to the part of the brain. So if you imagine this lizard sitting on your rock uh, or a rabbit in a a corner who's scared, we know there's no good talking to it and saying, don't be stupid. (laughs) There is no danger. I'm not going to kill you. Uh, You're (laughs) fine. We would know actually to calm an animal down, a cat, a dog, a rabbit, whatever. We would use our body language and our tone of voice. It's not the words we use, it's the intention behind the words. So you would move slowly and use kind of almost baby language and you'd be calm and you'd regulate your own breathing whether you were doing this subconsciously or not. And this would enable a a baby, a small child, an animal to feel safe and uh, then to down-regulate its own threat response. And... The feeling, and this is in many ways actually the crux here, it's about the feeling of safety. Yeah, Nothing can happen. There is no human development. There is no human progress. There are no relationships. There is no long-term health or um, healthy physiological re- uh, regulation in an organism that feels unsafe because it's constantly in survival mode. It's constantly in flight or fight mode. It's, it's uh, looking for threat or danger that may or may not be there. It's releasing stress hormones, and it's not thinking about the future. It's only thinking about the present moment. 
that's what I see really in clinic is a society that's created a constant feeling of not being safe. So a lot of people have had, um, and we know the, the developmental years before six, seven, eight are critically important for the development of the, of the adult nervous system. If people are overstimulated in the wrong way, if, people are, if a baby feels unsafe, if it feels unnurtured, if it doesn't have sufficient skin contact when it's developing, then its nervous system will be primed as an adult to look constantly for danger to remain in what we call hypervigilance, so a constant threat response. Mm. And that, with a lot of adults, is really what you're trying to reprogram. You're trying to create a perception of safety, which their nervous early nervous system may have not developed. Just touching on that point about baby's development and uh, feeling of safety, is that part of the reason why babies love lying on on your chest or on the front of a of a parent because of that direct you could say vibrational response of the parent and the baby through the vagus nerve and the whole sensory response that, that they get. Exactly, and not just babies, animals, of course. You know, cats love coming yeah. and sitting on your chest, don't they? And actually, it's interesting. I've had a few um, Sensate users email me and say, my cat comes to lie on my chest when I'm using the Sensate, <laughs> um, which, which is interesting. And it's the reason that, you know, babies go to sleep in the back of a car. That's the reason why cats like sitting on top of washing machines. There's, there's more. There's these senses work at a proprioceptive level they work at a connective tissue level a skin level so we know that you can't have enough you can't have too much skin to skin contact with a baby you can't hold a baby too much there's absolutely no notion you can spoil a child by um by making it feel safe enough it can never feel safe and too safe skin to skin contact is important lying a a child on your chest is important because it will hear your heart it will feel your breathing it the skin to skin contact will produce feel-good hormones that are actually produced in the connective tissue the 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 fascia and actually the you know the fascia is also a fascinating subject in itself 20 years ago we were dissecting bodies and throwing the fascia away we've now uh, with recent research understood that fascia the connective tissue of the body is actually a sensory organ and it's responsible for many functions that we thought the nervous system was responsible for. That's actually quite interesting because you know, to dive in onto to the fascia side, because I looked into the fascia side, one from uh, previously doing a lot of obstacle course racing and obviously trying to increase my flexibility, but also making sure that I was able to understand why I was feeling tension because I've got some injuries. My there's certain areas of my body where if I don't stretch or stay flexible, my body starts pulling out of alignment. Doing a lot of research into fascia and how that provides a superstructure throughout the whole body, I didn't actually think of it from a sensory perspective. I knew it how it provided like a superstructure throughout the body. It was like a spider web through the whole body. But I didn't really actually look at it from a sensory perspective. Well, no, fascia is now regarded as the body's largest sense organ. It also produces hormones. A lot of, a lot of the uh, developmental work around fascia as a sense organ was done by Leon Chato, sadly deceased last year. One of the first you know, people to really explore fascia as much more than just dumb connective tissue, but actually incredibly intelligent uh, sensory tissue. And he was one of the founders of the International Fascia Congress, uh, which takes place every two years. And you know, the, the way to vi- visualize fascia, I mean, there's different types of fascia, but if you've ever peeled the uh, skin off a chicken, there's that transparent layer 
between the muscles mm. and the flesh and the and the skin. And this, and you know, if you and if you could dip somebody in a vat of um, liquid that dissolved everything except for fascia, you'd have a perfect image of them, but r- roughly transparent. So fascia travels everywhere in the body. It wraps around all nerves, all muscles, all organs. And there's particular research that indicates this is almost certainly where the acupuncture tra- uh, meridians and points are. And 80% of acupuncture points oh, wow. are important fascial crossovers. Fascia has its own innovation. It has its own blood vessels. It has a degree of contractile capability. And um, as you say, it's a little bit like a spider's web. Well, it's, a bit, it's, it's a bit like dropping a pebble in a pond which is why you can stick a needle uh, in somebody's foot or do some body work on somebody's foot and they can feel it somewhere entirely different you have a, you send a ri- send a ripple down that uh, down that mechanism fascia is an incredibly important part of the nervous system and it again it's all very ancient it's deeply wired into our nervous system it, it works kind of indirectly with the vagus nerve to sense perception around us and as i said before mm-hmm. you know if vibration was the first sense it's also notable that of course we spend our first nine months of life in our mother's uterus hearing everything through bone conduction and through water so when we come out, so, so, you know, so we are also deeply hardwired to be receptive to sound and frequencies and vibrations perceived via bone conduction. And that's really the secret that, that we've discovered and patented, which is the transmission of sound via bone conduction. And, and that's what the Sensate device does. Okay. You've now basically dropped me in a completely different area, which I had never actually thought about. So I'd like to dig into that statement a bit more. How did you find out that link on the bone conduction and then decide to use technology to stimulate Mm. it? Because this is now really, it's becoming really fascinating. I mean, the whole discussion so far has been super fascinating. I've I've learned a lot. Thank you. I mean, it, it was an evolution. So, I mean, I'm really driven by two things. Obviously, my fascination with enabling people to find ways to de-stress themselves effectively, but also a fascination with technology and mm-hmm. also a fascination with music. My father was a professional musician and my brother is a musician now. What I'd noticed was that it, my ability to teach people to meditate effectively has decreased it's really dropped off a curve over the last 10 years or so. So whereas I could say to people years ago, you know, go off and do this exercise for 45 minutes and come back, there's just no way most people will do that. Uh, most people's experience of meditation is downloading Headspace and trying it for a few weeks, finding it boring and stopping and never getting beyond mm. the initial discomfort. I faced a choice a few years ago. I, I either had to essentially stop teaching people because what I was doing and traditional techniques and things like mindfulness were basically failing, or I had to find a way to reach people. And because I believe actually the future of the planet depends on sufficient uh, um, wave of people making good quality decisions not driven by fear i decided this was absolutely my mission and what i had to do Uh, and it was also clear that technology was the only way to achieve that because the learning curve for classical uh, meditation is just simply too long and too difficult 
We'd been looking at technology for a number of years. We came across uh, a technology in a clinic in Switzerland that we were doing some work with, and it was the first bit of plausible tech that I'd come across, which seemed to provide you know, the ability for people to meditate that couldn't meditate. So we brought that back. We were using that for a number of years, but there were issues with that. And I had this eureka moment, really, while using that tech, which is you could get rid of that technology completely and turn the body into the technology by placing a small device on the chest and using the natural resonating properties of the thoracic cavity via bone conduction as the means to vibrate the body. As I say, human beings have done this and found ways to try and do this over thousands of years, from omming and chanting and prayer and mantra. And if you've ever been to something like a gong group, a gong cycle, or you've ever participated in chanting, uh, chanting groups, or even a prayer group, you know, you'll know how incredibly powerful that is. And I think I think the mechanism that's happening there is we are making our chest vibrate you know on a mechanical level if we park anything to do with meditation spirituality for a moment and we look purely at what's happening mechanically where the right kind of vibrations in the chest enable the lungs the heart the vagus nerve the diaphragm to vibrate relax and go into harmony and start connecting the messaging between the brain and the gut and all the organs in between, which is, you know, all the organs. And, and as soon as we can do that, then stress hormone activity goes down, the organism feels safe, um, and we can then move beyond um, fear and into a position of contentedness. And that's the only place where progress or human development can happen, is, is if we can leave fear behind. Very interesting angle because that ties into something that Stephen Kotler has been working on, which is a high performance state and how the brain actually works under a high performance state and trying to solve some of the bigger challenges that people have or the, the, the world basically has because you could say the brain capacity to make decisions is determined by how you f think and function. This is something which I've been looking at for a number of years because my own fascination with it is looking into psychology, how the brain processes information, looking into vagus nerve, looking into gut health, looking at uh, nutrition, meditation, perception, all of these things, how they all tie in. Now, the, the fact that you're talking about getting out of that flight and fight response, there's a couple of things I just wanted to explore that with you. Have you actually looked at the polyvagal theory by Stephen Porges? Have you actually looked at the work that the writings of Stephen Kotler and his flow state research that he's been writing about and diving into over the last couple of years? Mm. I'm less uh, familiar with Kotler, but interestingly enough, I met uh, Stephen Porges last week and we had a conversation about oh, wow. Sensate, and he now is testing a Sensate uh, as we, well, maybe as we speak, I don't know, but certainly at the moment. He's very excited about it. I mean, Stephen obviously has already turned to sound as a solution to, to support the poly, polyvagal theory. So he's using the integrated listening systems, particularly with children with ADHD, autism, etc. Um, but And in a sense, people, uh, children or adults with those kind of neurodiverse syndromes are just extreme examples of most people. In my experience is that most people are walking around with a somewhat dysregulated nervous system. So if, if we know that sound can be used, and we absolutely know this, that sound can be used to 
construct a more regulated nervous system than in children, then we know it can be used in adults as well. In fact, in, in the technology, the use of vibrotactile sensation, the use of vibrosound, originated in the 50s with a, a guy called um, Olav Skile in Norway, who I went to see a few years ago. He, he was working with autistic children a long time ago, and he peed one day. He had a you know, child draped across a beanbag who was highly unresponsive and he grabbed his speaker and stuck it on the beanbag and the sound started passing through the beanbag and he saw a change in the child <laughs> it's um uh, we've, we've been experimenting effectively with the use of low frequency sounds conducted via the body rather than just via the ears for quite a few decades now Okay, wow, that's fascinating research. The other aspect of the bagel nerve, which which I've looked at, I've not had a chance to actually focus on the, the sound aspect and how that is, it can be used or how that has been used. My whole approach was looking at vagal nerve and actually improving vagal tone is obviously to improve thought processes and thinking and brain health and also be able to develop thought models because you're underlying it's a health structure underlying body health is in a position where it can actually support better decision making better analysis and better more creative thought processes and the fact that you can actually use something like sensafe to be able to stimulate the vagus nerve to improve the overall body health to then support that capability to me is hugely exciting and, and really interesting. I'm clear that this is a global issue and a global crisis of equal proportion to plastic or pollution or energy, energy, water safety, etc. All those things are important, but quite clearly the ability of human beings to do what needs to be done to affect the change necessary to stop those issues becoming catastrophic and the human race essentially dying out requires people to think differently to the way they're thinking now. If we look at the world at the moment, and I think England and America are obviously particular examples of this, if we look at the fear-based economy, the nature of consumerism and the way that we're encouraged to look at attachments and look at acquiring objects as a way of uh, allaying our fears, then you know that, that's something we really need to challenge. I'm totally clear. My mission is to enable the largest number of people to move into a more vaguely mediated decision-making process. Because when you do that, the insanity of the short-term decision-making that our leaders and many of us on our day-to-day -day lives are doing becomes very clear. Mm. Quite interesting because I think it, part of it is what you're trying to achieve is actually, you could say, overriding your primordial part of your body's protection processes of making sure that you're safe. Because a lot of people, the underlying aspect of it is their behavior is to stay safe, which means to get past that problem or to get past that situation is very, very difficult because you're fighting your biology. And if this does have the impact that I think it does have, it could potentially mean that a bunch of social you'd say, ills could be dissipated because the whole fight or flight response has been resolved or actually downplayed, downregulated, which allows a person to be a lot more creative and a lot more open to other aspects and being able to solve problems a lot more creatively. Yeah, exactly. We can add layers of sophistication, but there are only two real emotions in the way that I see it. There's fear and there's love. 
And we have to move away from the fear and we have to move towards the love. Everything else in between is a variation on that. And as long as we're driven by fear, then the, the motivation is never going to be positive. It's not going to be altruistic. It's not going to be compassionate. It's not going to be empathic. And it's only through compassion, gratitude, empathy that we will bring into place the changes that are necessary. I'm, I'm a huge technology optimist. I absolutely believe that we either have or can invent solutions to all the problems we currently have in the world, but only if we choose to do so. And that's, yeah. and that's the issue. You know, will a sufficient mass, a critical mass of people start moving away from fear and demanding changing their behaviors themselves because it, it does matter what we do and demanding of other people demanding of their leaders that they start to make different decisions about the environment about the economy yeah the other thing which i've obviously researched a lot about is the impact of the vagus nerve on overall body health and how it can positively affect a range of other disease issues and it's been probably one of the most fascinating journeys i've come across and the the other thing which i'm actually quite pleased about is that somebody in the uk is actually doing it because there's not a lot of vagus nerve stimulation devices outside of the uk so the fact that we've got somebody in the uk that's developed something like this is to, to me actually quite quite pleasing in certain aspects yeah now, vagus nerve stimulation is predominantly, is it a, a, it's a predominantly a medical intervention so most vagus nerve is either surgical implantation or uh, electrostimulation of the vagus nerve externally. So it's, it's mostly a medical sphere. And what we're trying to do is create a consumer, a non-medical vagus nerve stimulation device. Talk a bit more about what Sensate actually does and how it works. We took a very clear decision to not pursue a medical route. You know, despite my own kind of medical background, I wanted this to be something that was available direct to consumers, partly because it works. We've proven it works in clinic. People want it right now. People are buying it. The feedback we're getting is astonishing. Quite honestly, I've not seen anything like the kind of feedback and positive outcomes that we're getting in 30 years in, in medicine. If we'd gone down a medical route, we would have needed many more millions of pounds we would have needed years of research and then we may well have ended up with a product which health companies wouldn't have used anyway because it didn't work within their financial model so we are getting a lot of interest from practitioners psychotherapists and uh, acupuncturists and counselors etc who want to use this kind of technology in their work and we've already got quite a few reports coming back from people who are using it with trauma patients with children even though we don't make any medical claims for it people are buying it and they're using it with clients and they're, they're reporting remarkable effects. So it's essentially a, um, it's a piece of hardware that sits on the chest. It's a miniaturization that enables low-frequency sound to be transmitted via bone conduction into the thoracic cavity. Control it with an app. So there's a very nice app that goes with it where you choose the tracks and there's lots of material on there so you can choose something according to what you like. And that controls the device, but it also um, sends the music to your headphones. The use case, a typical session, is you've defined 10 minutes to sit somewhere quietly in the morning or after lunch or in the evening before bed and you put on your headphones and you close your eyes and you pop the sensor on your chest and you um, press play and you have a 10 20 or 30 minute session and you note how you're feeling before the session and you note how you're feeling after the session and there is a significant shift in on a session by session basis but there's a um, there's also a, a very powerful cumulative effect and this really is the thing that's important, you know, from, a, from the point of view of um, behavior change and habit formation psych um, psychology. We know 
that repeated patterns patterns of behavior lead to habit formation. Yeah, so neurons that fire together and wire together. Yeah, together. So positive feedback. Yeah, loops. exactly. So a habit can be, you know, can be an addiction, right? So it's the same in some ways. It's the same mechanism. Mm. We can have a yeah. habit to um, to smoke or a habit to drink or um, a habit to eat too much. We can also have a habit to exercise or to meditate or to be nicer to people. And essentially, the, what we are, what we do. You know, if we practice meditation every day, then that will become the habit and our neurons will start to become tuned to that. We'll set up neural pathways that enable a, a relaxation response, which we can delve into more quickly. The problem is that some of these neural pathways take time and there are competing neural pathways around destructive behavior, which it can be very hard to get beyond. So if somebody spends 10 minutes or longer, but uh, the use case is 10 minutes a day using Sensei, and the critical factor here is that it's passive. There are fantastic biofeedback and neurofeedback tools which do work. You know, if, if you do spend, I mean, if you use HeartMath and some other and some other devices, and if you do spend the time, or indeed if you spend half an hour a day doing your mindfulness meditation and actually doing it, then you will have positive outcomes. The problem is that when most people say they're meditating, they're not meditating at all. They're sitting there wondering about the shopping list or when the track's going to be finished. So even if you spend half an hour a day doing your meditation, if you're lucky, a few minutes of that is actual meditation, actual vagal regulation. So if you're, if you're getting five minutes a day of meditation and you need 10,000 hours, it's going to be a few lifetimes until you're proficient enough for, <laughs> for, for that to be of any value. What we've found, and we've also had a number of um, highly experienced meditators and monks use the technology, what we found is that people go into vagal regulation very quickly. And interestingly enough, it seems to be completely independent of whether they're awake or asleep. <laughs> um, and whether they're thinking or not thinking, it seems to there seems to be no relationship between the two things. So you can be asleep, and, and actually, because it's a passive process, the neural conditioning is still happening. And you can be thinking about the shopping, and the neural conditioning is still happening. But critically, because of this age of continual partial attention and people's really very narrow attention span, there were three particular factors that we made design goals when we were making Sensate, uh, which was that it had to feel good from the first session onwards. It had to show me measurable physiological change in 10 minutes. And at the end of a first 10-minute session, people had to stand up and say, I can feel the difference. And we achieved that in. It's a tough design. It, it was, but I, I was absolutely clear it needed to do that, and we achieved that with about ninety-eight percent of people, which is, you know, ridiculous, obviously, but it's it, it is it is the case. And it was important because you know there again there are technologies which we know if you do them you'll get the results, but the fact is people won't do them or don't do them. There are things which you can do like meditate, which if you do them and you do them effectively will give you the results, but we know people aren't doing them effectively. Then there are habits which you can incorporate in your life, um, and if you do them sufficiently, then you will also get results. But as we all know from New Year's resolutions, the vast majority of behavior change doesn't occur on a conscious level, it occurs on a subconscious level. Yeah, that's very true. And it's also it's, it's really hard work to try and override a subconscious process because you first have to identify it, and that's probably where the biggest challenge is, is to be able to identify the process to then allow you to make the change well because because of this um this uh, schism this disconnect between the frontal and basal brains our front brain is saying okay that's it again i've woken up with a hangover i'm never drinking again and your brain stems thinking yeah right 
<laughs> I like it. I, I like it when I feel drunk. And actually, I'm millions of years older than you are, and I'm plugged into your feel-good centers. You're not. You're an intellectual thought process that actually has very little control over your own body. Unless you plug into that process at a feeling level, yeah, what does it mean to you? Then an intellectual decision around behavior change has pretty much no impact. Yeah. And we okay. see this even with kind of trauma, you know, it's just, just, just very briefly, we see this even with kind of physical therapy. So psychotherapy has moved very much towards body oriented psychotherapy. So you, with an understanding of fascia, with an understanding of uh, sense perception, with a lot of the trauma work we do, a lot of it's uh, either nonverbal or semi nonverbal. You're working with the body rather than with the, the mind. Yeah. Stefan, to be honest, I'm, I'm struggling to cope with all the information that that we've spoken about just because there's so so much additional stuff which I've not even remotely considered. It's been hugely beneficial talking with you. I'd love to have you back again to talk even more about some of the topics once I've actually worked to, through some of the uh, the areas just to get a bit more insight and a bit more background on it. It's been phenomenally interesting. I really do appreciate it. And I'd like to just share with people where they can actually get hold of Sensate and what other information that you shared. I take it you've got some social channels as well. Sure. I mean, the easiest thing to do is to go to getsensate.com. So G-E-T, getsensate.com, and it's all there. You can buy it there. It's in stock now. Um, we've, uh, by, by public demand, we've made it available, basically, because people have been insisting that we make it available to, for them to purchase. So it is now available to purchase. It's gone out of the clinic and into onto the web. Uh, so getsensate.com. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. And yeah, the issue about being a holistic practitioner is you see everything being connected. So uh, it's quite easy for me to go from vagus nerve to fascia to babies to lizards. <laughs> Yeah, no, I I fully agree because I can I've been looking at thinking specifically from a holistic point of view, not just thinking of it from an analytical singular point of view. I've been looking at it from you know health nutrition. That's hence the reason I've looked into vagus nerve and how the vagus nerve has got a direct impact because you actually you're thinking with your gut, your as Stephen Paul just called it the uh, what's a neuroception, the whole perception that you get through your nervous system, and I think that also ties into the fascia, which you're talking about, that as a sensory organ, that I think ties into what potentially Stephen Porges talks about. And these things, for the brain to process that information, it uses all of the uh, sensory input to then assess, one, whether it's safe or whether, two, their more threat responses tie in, and then how the body reacts according to that. And if somebody is in poor health or some other issues or they're not paying attention, then it starts having an impact and being able to, you could say, solve some of those more threatening response reactions to be able to be more creative and capable of living up to the current lifestyle challenges that we've got as a, as a society and basically as a population as a whole is hugely interesting for me. I think we've got some really interesting challenges and, and it's going to require some advanced brain power to be able to do that. And we can't carry on the way that we're doing it. We have to find ways of actually improving our own capability and technology is, is going to play a crucial part, but it also requires additional responsibility and capability from ourselves. Yeah, we have to evolve. And it seems like a, a seemingly vast subject, but actually, you know what? It's very simple. 
and this is where I've got to now, and this is why I'm doing this. If we all dedicate a little bit of effort to improving vagal tone, the world's going to be a better place. Agree with you 100%. Lance, thank you. Great to talk to you. I'm happy to talk again. I would love to have you on again. It was a pleasure speaking with you, and I've learned so much. At some point, I'll probably email you with some additional points just to get some clarification. I'll probably re-listen to this and you know, I'll get the show notes out uh, out at some point as well because I think that you've got so much information over here. It's, I can spend another lifetime researching what, what you've still spoken about. Happy to help. When you support and review a podcast like this from someone like Lance, it gains more visibility and motivates him to produce more. What topics most interest you? The best topic gains a shout out on the podcast.